there could be something in the music. Something like a musical code. That's it. It's a cham cham. A cham cham? What's a cham cham, brains? Ian, are you ready to record a podcast? FAB. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Intermillennium Media Project, the IWMP podcast, where you can have your dose of media criticism, nostalgia, and misuse of parental authority. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And we're back to watching television. Yep. Sitting in our secret base and recording podcasts to send out into the world. That's right. We are talking about a show that uh, it ha- has had a lot of impact, not just on me, but on the culture. Oh, yeah. And and in some ways, it is one of the origin points for this show. It is a show whose... You, you showing it to me, and me being vaguely aware of it before, and in- running into instances and in reference to it before I saw it in the actual wild was something that was in my mind that you helped then show me where it came from and I and stitch it all together in that sense. And that's definitely part of what this show is all about. So I, this feels like we're coming back home to one of the core topics of this entire project. I think that that is a fair assessment, given uh, given the impact of this show. And I think we can go right ahead this time and start out with what it is we're talking about. We are talking about Thunderbirds. We are back to Jerry Anderson, but this time, it's Superman-ation! Right, we've talked about Jerry and Sylvia Anderson shows before with UFO and Space 1999, but this is the, the, the show that, that Jerry and Sylvia Anderson are most known for, I think. This is almost the quintessential production of theirs right it's not the first of their productions it's not the first of their supermarionation productions but it is the one that has captured more people's imagination and is more widely known i think than any of their others it it just has this we've talked before about how anything else they make has this kind of this construction to the world this this depth that it gets because of the way they built their props and they used their color and everything else. But when your characters are built the same way as the world, there's a cohesion to it all. Right, it all fits in together. We sometimes talk about how certain kinds of special effects make magic and other things in movies seem otherworldly. If you're using old-fashioned... um stop motion or masking effects or other things that are not going to look the same as your everyday shooting. It makes it look more magical. This is an example of the other way around. Everything is constructed as models and puppets. It all just, you forget that you're watching models and puppets and it's just, you're watching this story and you're watching characters and you care about them. There's almost something more shaking when they use the occasional close-up of a physical human <laughs> hand to do stuff. When we watch this show, there is this call-out of the real hand! <laughs> and like, an almost drinking game, like, nope, nope, take two shots for that one, yeah. kind of. Real hands, take a drink. Take a drink. Because 
it is a, more jarring to see a person, even part of one, for a moment in the show where you're, you've already settled into the fact that the, everyone doesn't blink unless they're specifically puppeted to. So if you don't know what supermarionation is, let's give you a little primer on this. Oh, you're in for a fun time in that case. It's, it's kind of what it sounds like. It is a TV show that is produced such that all of the characters are marionettes. And they're built at a scale. And when you see pictures of behind the scenes and things, they're bigger than I had realized at the time. But they're marionettes, and of course, then their entire world are model sets and everything else in the world that we see without you know characters in them are models. And we talked a bit about the the, the terrific model work uh, you know, that the Andersons Productions had in UFO and in Space 1999. Super, Super Marionation Productions were all Anderson puppet and model work. Mm-hmm. And you can tell which ones are designed for what part, because there are puppets and models that'll be reused, and they've got these details, this very clear quality. It's not... A lot of modern stop-motion puppetry, or puppetry stuff in general, will use the fact that mass manufacture allows for rapid duplication. A Leica production is getting all these facial responses by replacing face masks repeatedly. And while they had backups of puppets and such, there is something very much, we're making one that'll last as an actor for a, for a series in the way they put in the detail to get these little tiny things on some of these characters right. Right, and in terms of the reactions and the, the quote-unquote acting, this is not stop motion. It oh. is live marionette work. So it's this combination of voice acting and puppetry and the model design and manufacture that works so very well. And it's easy to watch a short clip of this and think, oh, well, these are silly puppets. But once you get into it and start watching the story, you totally forget about that. Oh, yeah. Jim Henson and company did amazing stuff sitting underneath where the camera was and reaching their hand up to run these characters and bring them to life in a way where you stop thinking about the fact that there's someone underneath them doing that. Jerry and Sylvia Anderson got a bunch of people, and they did the exact same sort of, once it clicks, you're just there with them, but instead of being below where the screen is, they're standing above where the screen is, with <laughs> wires hanging down, and it is, there is a, a, a love of craft in both of them, and there's so many people who love the fur, love Jim Henson stuff, and I, I love for those people to see some of the really awesome parallel here on the other side, too, which is why I bring it up in that, that if, you, if you've never seen this, but you've seen Muppets before, then you can understand how that will capture you in terms of movement and such brings something to life so much. They're doing the same thing with these marionettes on the other side. Yeah, uh, Mrs. Darling Wife got me some books, some imports of behind-the-scenes and biography-type things about Jerry Anderson, about these productions. I just love looking at those and seeing the scale of these sets and these puppets and the all of the, the puppeteers crowded on these catwalks above the set. It's, it's amazing the work that they did to, to 
capture the mo- the the uh, the TV show in this way. And I'm I'm talking about how much I love the detail and physicality, but the physicality is also where they can have a lot of fun with some of the silliest stuff. Yeah. In terms of the fact that if there is something crashing to the ground and exploding, this means they can take their little model, break it, have it fall over, and then set off a firework and blow it up. And you can also, I have fun when we're watching an episode trying to figure out what will explode, because it's always the thing with a little less paint on it. <laughs> and I love that fact. Yeah, this and one like, is not intended to survive to another episode. Exactly. So this one is going up, and sometimes you'll even see, like, the fire takes down the building, and then you'll see, like, a cut, as you because you'll notice it starts eating away at something else, <laughs> and there's just, like, this cut to a reaction shot and back, and, like, no, no, this is from a different angle, because that was not, the the second thing was not supposed to light on fire. Yeah, they like blowing up things and burning things, and you're right, I think they did sometimes get out of, out of control. And the rocket engines on some of the vehicles, too, they look like you know, model rocket engines that I used when I was a kid. I think that that may be what they were, or, or at least they had something burning there to to, to give the uh, the impression of uh, a rocket exhaust. Oh, yeah. And... The, I mean, every single time the opening plays, which also, I mean, my goodness, the opening, it has this, like, thunderous, you know, drums solo and this triumphant music to it. And every time they tell you it's Super Marionation, it is introduced with the absolute, complete, explosive destruction of the same building. Like, <laughs> what did this building do that it requires a... Like this much extra explosion, and to be redestroyed every single episode to start. <laughs> yes, they just hate that refinery, don't that they? That refinery did something, and it needs to be punished. What is going on? And you mentioned that opening. I don't know if this is the first show to do this, but it's the earliest one that I'm aware of that had that that opening where the introduction has. Certain shots that are always the same in the the opening titles, introducing the characters, showing off some of the equipment, but then also had this rapid montage of action scenes from the episode you're about to see. And that, you know, as a kid, that was kind of compelling. Like, Just the opening itself is all this cool action, and now we're going to get to see the story around it. Talk about a hype generator. It's, you know... Oh my goodness, this was a lot of shots of Thunderbird 4. It means it's going to be an underwater episode. Oh, sweet. <laughs> or like, my goodness, how much fire was in just now? That's a lot of fire. What's going to happen? Why is there this much fire? So you can tell we're excited about this show and the way it was put together. But I don't think we would be if it were just a question of we love Super Marionation and we loved watching models that are well-built and we love watching models blow up. There were other Super Marionation shows before this one. Uh, Fireball XL5 was a favorite of my older brothers. Uh, Captain Scarlet, another one I haven't really seen much of. But I think Thunderbirds captured me because of the characters and the world that it created. Because it was, it seemed so big, and it also was one of these things where, as a kid, it seemed like an, an optimistic and believable vision of what the future would be. Yeah, it there it is a type of story that is not as often seen of this rescue fiction. And it kind of has to set up a place for these things to happen and then give us these these adventures that 
don't have to be sequential and they don't have to be antagonism. They can just they can be stories of adventure in that sense. But the world that they set that up in gives all these possibilities, and that's really fun. Right. And you know, Warren Ellis wrote a great essay about rescue fiction and the importance of things like Thunderbirds. I'll link to that if I can find it. But you're right, there definitely are stories in which there are bad guys, there are villains, but there are also stories where there's a problem with some new technology or something else going wrong, and the antagonist is the problem, and these the, the, these people have to come in and save people by fixing the problem and understanding it. it is, that's, that's really the core of rescue fiction. It's something's going wrong. But there are people who are smart and competent and equipped who can make it right. And in order to set up stories like that, it has to give you a world which is just so full of innovation and new technologies possibly being put out before fully tested in order to have those things happen. And that right there is the start of like how it builds this I mean, when is, when is it supposed to be set time-wise? It's like... It's set in the 2060s, so it's set 100 <laughs> years into the future from when it was made. This was made in the like mid-1960s, and it's set in the 2060s. And it is kind of an optimistic vision of the world, because while there are still villains and there are still problems, the the civilization, the culture, seems extremely global. And... The, the tech level, there's it's a pretty high-tech world, although it's high-tech as could have been envisioned by people in the 1960s, so there's no internet. And although we see some pretty cool communicators, there's no cell phone network. But it's like the best technology of the 1960s, 100 years more advanced. I want to call it like high-engineering science fiction instead of high-communication science fiction. Because, I mean, there is things like, there's things where it's, you know, all about the, the, the information being transferred and stuff. But there's so much more, partially because the models lend that same physicality, but also just in terms of the type of problems that they let themselves, they get uh, set up and such. There is high engineering. There's new advanced materials. There's hydraulic doors that are usually having to be cut down because something goes wrong. There is large buildings pushing the limits of what man was constructing and having all of the engineering challenges therein. There's new transportation technology constantly being tested and put to use in order to get people from place to place. The information is still transferred via radio, maybe like a, a recording device that's brought someplace, but the people are the thing being moved most of the time. And that's where the challenge comes in. There's a there is a an engineering of spatial manipulation instead of informational. I love that phrase, high engineering, because today when we think of tech, we tend to think digital because even our heavy equipment and our cars and everything, it's so driven by their digital content and their, their computer components. And... That wasn't a part of the vision of the, the, the future technology in the Thunderbirds. You're right. It was, it was adva not advances in computers. They have computers, but they weren't anywhere near what we see today. 
But you're right, the engineering, the physical things were the physical things were the the big leap. And most of the plots involved some new kind of technology and someone a bad guy trying to steal it or take it over, or it just being so new that something unexpected happens and it malfunctions. It's a world where our podcast here could exist, but it would be about us recording a a large bank of tapes and then like sending them via a pneumatic system to pick up points all across <laughs> the the globe for you, the listener, to grab and enjoy at home from our recording booth. And either something would go wrong with the pneumatic and we'd be trapped in a place and there'd be something going wrong, or some bad guy would attempt would attempt to like take us over and insist that we send a message that is then transferred via this network and then the, the the tubes have to be stopped before this gets to where it's going kind of thing. I like that idea. Tube casts instead yeah. of podcast. We're sending our reel-to-reel tapes through the pneumatic tube system. There is a pirate radio station in one of the um the Thunderbird stories, but it's people in a satellite taking over a frequency and broadcasting music and things down to earth. So I guess that's the closest thing they show us to a podcast. Yeah. I could go with a satellite. I'd like a satellite. So in this world, this wonderful high engineering future world of uh, of Thunderbirds, we have the Tracy family. Jeff Tracy, who is an American, and, and this is an English television series, like all of the Jerry and Sylvia Anderson stuff was produced by, I believe it was ITV like most of their uh, their stuff that I know of, and uh, but it was popular all around the world. But there's something about English television depictions of Americans that I love. I don't know why, but it's great. There's something where it's only because it'd be hard to move the hand the right way, where he doesn't emphasize his sentences with a fist to the table, like, ha, ah, every once in a while. Some of it's awfully close. Some of it's just, awfully love- close. There's, just, there's this either, like, I am relaxing hi or this ah boys go do the thing i get the picture and i like it now here's what we do so jeff tracy is a former united states air force officer and lunar astronaut one of the earliest one of the first men on the moon and he's also apparently a multi-multi-millionaire yeah like because he lives in on Tracy Island, this island in the South Pacific somewhere. Its location is a secret. And he lives there with his five sons, who are all, each of them are named after a different uh, Mercury astronaut. Scott, John, Virgil, Gordon, and Alan. And, I mean... I mean, that that right there is a starting cast for you, having this this group of this this commander figure and these group of five sons who can all have these distinct personalities but be working as an almost color-coded Power Rangers-y kind of unit in that sense, and it's fun. And I like the fact that the um, the sons all do have distinct personalities and styles, and uh, you read about this show, you find out that there were specific actors they kind of had in mind when they designed the different uh, models for the... Um, for the sons and even and even for Jeff and others. So you really do get a sense of them being um real characters. And in addition to the five sons uh, on this uh, Tracy Island, he's got uh, Kirano, 
who is Jeff. We don't see him all the time, but he's kind of the major domo butler sort of character on Tracy Island. Yeah. And there's Kirano's daughter, Tintin Kirano, uh, who is you know, a beautiful young lady. And there is Brains, who is the scientist and engineer behind a lot of what we're about to talk about. And then there's Grandma Tracy, <laughs> who um, is apparently a terrific cook and very old-fashioned and you know, helps take, make, make sure the boys take care of themselves. Yeah, she's... Grandma Tracy feels like she's either over or underutilized in terms of the, the family, because everyone else gets these very fun, distinct personalities. We've got very serious, and we've got kind of goofy, and we've got Alan, our our youngest, and kind of... I almost want to call him plucky. <laughs> it's not what I expected, but it's the only phrase that came to mind. But Grandma Tracy just becomes almost a, like, a... A, a call uponable punchline at times, unfortunately. Yeah, all of the characters can remind me a little bit of the characters from Disney's Carousel of Progress. Oh my goodness, you're right. And Grandma Tracy possibly more than the others. Oh, I hadn't put that together, but yeah. What if the Carousel of Progress, like, jumped up and tried to save you when something went wrong? Because that's what the Tracys do. That's what they do. They're not just chilling on this uh, uh, Pacific island. This island is their base, their headquarters, for their organization, International Rescue. Now, that's, that is a nice, concise, this-is-what-we-do kind of organization name. Yes, they do have an entire space component. Is international applicable when you are also moving into the territory that is no longer definable by geographic location that is the entirety of not on earth yeah i don't know what the uh what the treaty conditions were at the time in space but you're right they they john spends most of his time apparently in orbit on this space station and we'll talk more about that and some of the other machines i just want to mention some of the other components of international rescue because it is jeff tracy leading it his sons as the main frontline operatives. He also has you know, brains behind the technology, Kirano and Tintin helping out. He also, just to round this out, has Lady Penelope. Oh, yay. She's his, the, the London agent is her role in international rescue. And she gets involved when there's more diplomacy or spy type stuff happening. And she's assisted by her butler slash chauffeur Parker. Parker! He's a great character. He is a brilliant character. He is simultaneously the, like, the Arnold, uh, I want to go home, I shouldn't have come to school today character, and the, when stuff goes down, he's actually, like, kind of little too ready for stuff at times. Yeah, he's got the Cockney accent and the apparently shady past. He's a master safecracker, among other things. But he's reformed enough that he's now assisting Lady Penelope as the London agent for international rescue. And also, if there's anyone whose day is going to get the most thoroughly interrupted by when they have to save the world, it's always Parker. If the Tracys are doing something and something interrupts them, they're usually getting to finally come back to do that by the end of the day. But Parker will have, like, 
the tickets to the one night event that he never gets to go to at the end. Or he'll, like, want to go fishing and the boat's destroyed by the end. He's always kind of got the shortest end of the stick, and that just makes me feel for him. Yeah, he is kind of the um, the comic relief character in that way, and uh, they they always come back to that kind of scene. But he is he is indispensable. I like Parker. I like Parker a lot. And as you can imagine, one of the reasons they've set these up, we get yeah. some kinds of, of various relationships or hints of relationships. It's a kid's show. So they don't spend a lot of time on romance and things, but uh, Alan, the youngest of the Tracy uh, boys, definitely has a big crush on Tintin. There's some kind of flirtation sometimes between Lady Penelope and Jeff, who is a widower. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah there kind of is. I think so. And and in this in this version of Thunderbirds, at least, that seems to be the case to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we also get all the, the relationships among the brothers and their distinct personalities. John, of course, being the loner for the most part and spends most of his time in space and seems to enjoy that. And, uh, yeah. and others having different, um, different specialties, different ways of spending their downtime. They really make them distinctive characters. Oh, yeah. You could, you could imagine a story where they could fill out nothing actually going wrong and they've got enough of a personality you know enough of an interpersonal drama and connection that i could enjoy just watching them like have a day and that's good because if you can if you can watch your characters in their downtime then they're interesting enough to definitely follow when something goes awry and that's the entire point yeah i haven't looked but You've got to believe there's a lot of fan fiction out there that is just the Tracys hanging out on Tracy Island and interpersonal stuff happening. There probably is. If not, there should be. But they don't really spend a lot of their time on Tracy Island. They spend their time going out and rescuing people. And the reason they can do that is apparently they've been trained their entire lives to do this, and they're all highly educated, they're all highly capable, and they're skilled pilots. Because the way they get around the entire world to rescue people from this, that, and the other thing, and sometimes to outer space, are the eponymous Thunderbirds. Thunderbirds. The equipment, the, the, the vehicles that are the, the, the core, I don't know, the core, the people are the core, but the, the most recognizable aspect of Thunderbirds are the Thunderbirds, these vehicles. These are the projection of kind of who these characters are in some ways, of what they're dealing with what, and these are the, I mean, I'm just going to come out with it. These are the awesome toyetic aspects. Oh, you know These it. are so fun. I mean, there's some oddness in terms of the fact that, like, you, there's always a story that involves one of them, and some of them get more use than others because of the types of stories you tell. But, my goodness. They all are very well-built, fun, interesting designs, and they all have, like, a... Someone sat down and thought what they will have to do, and then built a machine around that. Instead of building a machine and then figuring out what that machine could do, and then setting up stories for what these machines could do, there's a little bit of a an actual, like, think of the problem first, and then build the solution in terms of how these are very mechanical devices. 
They have functionality. And they're consistent in the way they portray the capabilities of these machines. They don't just give it a new superpower because they need it for the plot. And I like that. That makes them seem more solid to me. Mm-hmm. Now, there's an issue of scale. Yeah. Like, the, the Tracy boys do not get equivalently sized machines based on what they're doing. <laughs> oh my goodness, Gordon gets a little bit of a short end of stick if you're comparing, like, how much he has to work with of a device. Right. But he also gets the largest area to work... No, wait, no, he doesn't. He gets the second largest area to work in. <laughs> so there are five Thunderbirds, just to run down them. There's Thunderbird 1. That's a hypersonic rocket plane. It takes off vertically like a, um, a, a missile or a rocket, but then goes to horizontal flight and can move at hypersonic speeds. And that, got the, that one has the really, really funky like gyro seat where oh. he's like he's sitting in this entire like uh, rotatable car like cartridge within it that turns as he moves and turns his seat. So he's facing the right direction. Which takes up a lot of physical space inside the top of the rocket, but is also really cool to watch happen. Very thoughtful on Brain's part to provide that. Oh, yeah. And yeah, it, after it takes off vertically from the hidden silo that is below the swimming pool on Tracy Island, the swimming pool slides out of the way and then uh, and reveals the silo where Thunderbird 1 lifts off. And then it goes horizontal and wings swing out. And uh, as you say, his pilot compartment swings around so he's in the right piloting configuration i feel for carano because every single time he has to move all that deck furniture right back because every single time we watch as it gets absolutely thrown to the to the rock walls as this rocket <laughs> fires up out of their pool you think brains would come up with some kind of solution for that retractable lawn chairs or something <laughs> tape always... t- tape tiny roombas to the feet so it moves <laughs> back into place every time or something so yeah, that's Thunderbird 1, and that's piloted by, uh, by Scott Tracy. Then there's Thunderbird 2, which is, is a supersonic carrier piloted by... Uh, uh, who pilots that? Thunderbird 2 is Virgil. That's, that one's piloted by Virgil, yeah. yeah. So Virgil pilots Thunderbird 2. It's this bulbous kind of lifting body sort of shape to it. It, but it can still go at, at supersonic speeds, and it is modular. It's got this central component that can be fitted with, it's hollow, it can be fitted with different pods, which can do everything from holding another vehicle for holding laboratory equipment. It's a little bit like a, a sky crane type helicopter. It's more than a little bit like the Eagle spacecraft that we see in the Andersons Space 1999. Oh, it is extremely eagle-like in terms of its modular insert and design. I mean, it looks a little bit more like someone stretched a Harrier jet over a Quonset hut and then painted <laughs> it green, but that's functional in such a brilliant way. It is. I, I, it's, if, if you need to be prepared for so many different situations, having that kind of modular carrier aircraft makes so much sense i love the idea i mean also virgil though gets the fewest hobbies and such because he is out doing stuff the most often it is the most utility based of the thunderbirds and gets kind of i think the most screen time of them all i think so yeah there's more almost every time uh, thunderbird 2 and thunderbird 1 are deployed for missions and other thunderbirds may or may not depending on where and what they have to do yeah, thunderbird 1 is to get there quick and tell everyone to calm down. 
get situated. And then Thunderbird 2 comes up with a like a, a container full of tools that they can fix stuff with, and they get to work then. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes uh, Thunderbird 1 gets there first, as you say, to calm people down, to set up a um, a forward base with a communications console, and then a little bit after that, Thunderbird 2 shows up and actually gets the work done. Mm-hmm. And Thunderbird 3 is a a rocket ship, a spaceship. It's a single stage to orbit uh, rocket that is piloted usually by Alan, who's the youngest Tracy, but Scott and John can also pilot or co-pilot it sometimes. I mean, that one has that one doesn't get a lot of use, but when it does, you know it's a good episode. Right. It's very specialized. It's out there in space, and they do have space episodes because you know, humans are out there in space, apparently, uh, as uh, as they would be 100 years after the 1960s and the, the height of the space program. Oh, yeah. It, it it becomes a thing you might have to commute. And Thunderbird 4, that's Gordon's specialty. Thunderbird 4 is the submersible. So Gordon is the aquanaut who pilots Thunderbird 4. And we really don't see Thunderbird 4 all that much. But it's kind of cool when you do. It is. Anytime I see it's full of Thunderbird 4, I get excited because he's fun. His stories usually have some good tension to it. It is a little unfortunate. He always has to be, like, given a ride to where he's going to be dropped off by Virgil in Thunderbird 2 (laughs) first. Because it's always, you know, Thunderbird 2 comes over, drops a cartridge that floats into the water, then it opens up, and then Gordon and Thunderbird 4 kind of fall out of the thing into the water. And then get to the action. It's like, you've got the only ship that can't actually get where it's going on its own. Have fun! <laughs> but it can operate in that environment where none of the other Thunderbirds can. Oh yeah, so. that, 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 one's, that one has some, some cool benefit for that reason. And the Thunderbird 5, we've alluded to before. Thunderbird 5 is the space monitor. Or, or you could say that John is the space monitor because... He lives most of the time on Thunderbird 5. It is an orbiting space station. And mostly, apparently, what it does is, from orbit, it monitors communications around the globe. Everything from official communications to broadcasts to kids' walkie-talkies. And it's listening for emergency distress signals. On every frequency. That's a, I don't know. If At all John times. must take a lot of trucker speed or something, because that's a <laughs> big job. And the world operates 24-7. Yeah, it's just like... It's just like John there with an arrow press. <laughs> yeah. just, I mean, he seems awfully chill, but that's quite a job if he's the one monitoring. Because remember, this is all analog. They don't have computers sorting through this or doing speech analysis. It's... I don't... They never really say, but sometimes messages from from the surface pop up on his speakers. So maybe... They're implying there's some kind of computer analysis sorting those out, but I don't know. It still seems to leave John a lot of work to do. Yeah. I. My goodness, yeah. All the other jobs are, like, ridiculously feasible in that sense. They're, they're, they're not, no, that's wrong phrasing. They're, they have this level of, you know, kind of believable... Okay, the fact that you're the only person doing this is a little much, but we're going to accept that for the story. The fact that he's there supposed to be watching everything like that is the thing where it's like, I can't even 
properly rationalize that. <laughs> that one goes a little too far for me. Yeah, it's a little, you know, Man Who Fell to Earth or Ozymandias from Watchmen or something. It's like, <laughs> how are you processing all of this? You also gotta imagine, like, what other things he gets other than just distress signals. Like, how much, if they're listening to end to everything and being this secret useful thing, like, he has gotta hear some stuff no one else is supposed to. He has gotta wind up with the, like, I think he's staying awake just on gossip. I think I may have just figured out how the Tracys finance international rescue. Oh my goodness. I am I am never in a million million years going to suggest that they're they're listening and recording things and using it for blackmail. But if they're listening to and analyzing all this global communications, it might give them some investment ideas. If they can analyze it properly, it's all public information. It's out there in the airwaves. They're just figuring out how to use that to reinvest their money to finance this ridiculously enormous enterprise that's run by six guys, their household staff, and one brilliant engineer. I mean, so so you're suggesting we've got like Tracy PR and uh, brand management company? LLC? Like. Oh, no, I was, I was thinking about different, you know, industrial developments and, and things like that that they're getting wind of. But yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're hearing everyone talk about the, the brand new soda, then maybe you can, uh, can suggest to the competitor how to market to counteract that. And, right. You know. Hmm. Especially with a very globalized market. We might have just, we might have just <laughs> solved a, a, a question of Thunderbirds there. Now I'm concerned about, you know, securities regulators storming Tracy Island. Maybe that's the real reason they keep Tracy Island secret. The oh, yeah. ostensible reason is they don't want any bad guys to find out where Tracy Island is and get information about these machines, although because they would use them for, for ill. I mean, the Thunderbirds have engine technology that is, like, outside of what a lot of the other machines have. Even for this highly engineered world, this one's a step beyond. Right. Kind of that, you know... That standard uh, concept, you know, things are made, things are then made for the military, and then things are made for the for the public consumption before that. This is like the step before the military there. They're made for putting onto the Thunderbirds, and then the military gets copies, and then the public will get something after like a product generation cycle after. And there are a story or two where we see Brains were as an engineering consultant to some really super high-tech military or, or aerospace project. Under an assumed name, or maybe his real name, because I don't think his parents named him Brains. But uh, but yeah, he he obviously is the top of the, at the in the world in this field. So you're right. The thing first, the first uh, people to get this super advanced engineering is going to be the Tracys. If they did name him that from the beginning, that's kind of an oddly predictive naming thing. We're getting <laughs> we're getting into like the My Little Pony. How'd you know your kid was going to have that icon? Kind of. <laughs> early warning system of, of future success. And we're getting into like free will or destiny uh, questions, but with uh, My Little Pony and, uh, and the Thunderbirds. <laughs> but we can't, we can't uh, end uh, a discussion about the Thunderbird machines themselves without mentioning the boarding process. Oh, yes. The boarding process. The... The ridiculous playfair that is the boarding process. Most of the, the time we see the Tracys on Tracy Island, they're in this big family room lounge type thing, and there's a, a little office area for, for Jeff and his communications equipment and stuff there. But they're in this really cool 
mid-century modern lounge with a piano and a conversation pit and all that. And then a call comes in, usually from one of the portraits of all the family members and, and the eyes Penelope. The, the eyes flash when there's a call coming in from somebody, very creepy, and it becomes a video screen where there can be a video call with them. And then Tra uh, Jeff Tracy decides what Thunderbirds to deploy. And when they have to be deployed, they go through these like hatches in the wall or this elevator built into one of the sofas, and they're sliding through these tubes to get to the launch bays for the uh, for the Thunderbirds. You see a little bit of this repeated in UFO, where you've got the the guys piloting the moon interceptors jumping into these chutes to bring them down to the the launch hangars, but but it's these long, bizarre but fun to watch sequences of the Tracys oh, yeah. being slid through tubes and elevators and things, and forklifts to get to the the machines they have to pilot. In some way, in some way, that's one of the reasons I like Gordon, because his is more implied to just be like, go walk over and get in the thing with your ship in it. <laughs> Everyone else goes through these things, and he's just like taking the stairs, go hop into the pod, Thunderbird Force sits in. There's something a little bit more car in the garage about his, and I love that. Yes. Yeah, Gordon is a little more relaxed than the others in a lot of ways, I think. Oh yeah. I kind of I kind of want I kind of wanted him to have to go down one of them for a different mission and just be like kind of freaked out and screaming the entire way. It's <laughs> like he has to hop into Thunderbird 2 for the main way, and he's just like, ah you do that every time. What are you thinking? <laughs> If any of the Tracy boys is a Jimmy Buffett fan, I think it would be uh, it would be Gordon. He hangs out at the beach, he's into the ocean, and he's chill. He doesn't have to climb through tubes and go on forklifts and stuff. He just, you know, wanders into the pod, checks the fuel on Thunderbird 4, and he's good to go. <laughs> I think I've broken Ian. He's laughing off mic now. <laughs> I just want him with, like, I've got a case of the Mondays shirt. <laughs> Over the blue international uh, rescue uniform <laughs> with the silly little hat. My goodness, the uniform. Because they always like pop out of the tubes in uniform. Or no, 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 no. They no. don't. No, their uniforms are stashed in the ships. But they always like change into uniform before they they take off. Yeah, sometime between you know part of their pre-flight check, I guess, is change into the uniform. And the uniform is kind of science fictiony, kind of paramilitary. It includes a sash that includes a holster that holds a, a firearm. Yeah, I mean, so, so like, and like, and apparently some of the international rescue vehicles are are armed as well. So, you know, they'll throw down if they have to. Their goal is to save lives, but they're ready to fight. Yeah, yeah. and and it's the hat. It's every time it's the hat. It's this little like a uh, flat fold boat hat. I don't know why. I don't know why oh, they chose that. It's, it's very military. It is. Very mid-century military. And yet with a bit of a sci-fi twist of the materials and colors and things. Mm-hmm. It is a very rich blue. So these are the Thunderbirds and the Tracys and International Rescue, and that's what the whole series is built around. And we could spend... Hours and hours. We could have a whole podcast just about the Thunderbirds because there are 
Uh, there were two seasons. The second season was short, but there's you know, well over 20 episodes of this. And they're about an hour long each. They don't always have an hour's worth of story, I'll admit. Some of the times, sometimes the pacing has something to be desired, as with a lot of things that we talk about and that was produced a while ago. But there are a lot of stories, and most of them are really good. I like yeah. the storytelling. Yeah, I mean, there's a total of 32. 32? Oh. 32 episodes across the two. And that's not seasons. including two movies with the Super Marionation Thunderbirds that were made also. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were, they're hour-long each. And so, I mean, it is, it is not an insignificant amount of content. It is, an, it is a less than that amount of content in that content. <laughs> right. But it is, it is all, every single one of those is a very different action story in that sense. And I've got definitely favorite episodes. But I've never, I've rarely thought, oh, this wasn't a good episode. I've usually thought, okay, that had some fun bits in it. Yeah, they always have at least a few cool scenes or, or bits of dialogue or something. The first one, at least in the sequence that we've watched them, I and the first one that we saw was uh, Trapped in the Sky. Oh, that's a fun which one. Which is kind of an, an, an aircraft hijack, high-tag aircraft hijack kind of story. It also introdu introduces us to the main recurring villain of the story, the Hood. The Hood is this kind of shady international supervillain, although occasionally, apparently, he is doing work for even more powerful and scary villains for hire. But he is um, has a lot of technology at his disposal. Also, has some kind of black magic and hypnosis and things at his disposal. He's got LEDs in his eyes. Right. That's something about the super marionation. They're a little bit oddly proportioned. They're pretty well proportioned, but the heads are a little bit big to control, so to contain all of the mechanical things inside to make the mouths move and sometimes you know, make the eyes blink and, and really give some expression to these. But also in the hood, they have little light bulbs behind them. I don't think so, they were LEDs in the, 50, in the 60s, yeah, yeah. but... Uh, but you know, that must be must have been getting hot inside that head. <laughs> I kind but of his was. eyes would glow and he could either by looking at you or with the proper black magic and candles and incantations rem uh, remotely take over people's minds. And that factors into Trapped in the Sky because he is apparently the brother or cousin of Kirano, the Tracy's butler, and he takes over Kirano to find out information about this project. I don't know how the Tracys were connected to this new supersonic transport plane, but he winds up getting some equipment on the hood gets equipment on board and takes over the uh the Fireflash SST while Tintin, his I guess the Hood's niece, is on board. Yeah, so this is this one this one's dramatic from early on just because there is this I admit it's it's awkward. There is it's a very um it, it's a it's a very diff different times take on how you do a bad guy in some ways. Yeah, the uh the hood is definitely presented as Asian in some sense if you go by the sculpture and things around him kind of Southeast Asian and and not as bad as some worse than it should be with the stereotypes around people who are not 
American and European. But, um, but you know, the, the less said about that, the better. But you're right, there's, there is too much of that in here. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of that with Kirano, not so much with Tintin. She's really a, a good character, I think. Oh, yeah, she, she's very good. And in some ways, she gets to be an audience proxy at times, because she's the one that will be just as terrified as we are. And especially in this one, where she's on the plane, she gets to be kind of a, a running commentary track of how tense this is. True, and you say terrified, but at the same time, she is smart and can be cool in a tough situation. It, yeah, she, she the audience proxy, and also the fact that she's pumped up and excited seeing this happen and watching the, them save the day and is you know confident that our heroes will win. There is this, but she gets to be that, that point of reference for us. And it's partially set up in this one where she is in the danger actively more so than she is in most any other episode. And it is this, this high speed race against the clock as they try to control this plane and bring it back under you know, you bring it back down safely. And it's a good example of that kind of one category of Thunderbird stories. It's a new technology, and it is interfered with by the Hood or another bad guy. And International Rescue has to come in to thwart the bad guy's plans and to save the people whose lives are endangered by this now out-of-control technology. And I think one of the best parts of that in terms of setup is the fact that it is not the fire flash that his is, is his goal. His goal is the Thunderbirds. Right. He is intentionally attacking the, the fire flash to draw them out. And then he's hoping to get information about these even more advanced machines sent to save it so that he can steal their information and sell it to the highest bidder. I think that isn't this where we get to see the uh, the camera warning system that like flashes and alerts them if someone took a picture of the planes. Right, they're very very secretive about these machines, and they have this system that somehow detects whether there's a camera nearby that that is taking a picture of the machines, and they warn everybody around when they're coming in to help. No pictures, no following us. This all has to be super secret. I mean, how do they do that? Is that like a quantum box that recognizes when it's been observed because it falls to a state I'm, I'm getting too technical on this but still yeah it's like... and it's <laughs> i'm sorry our cat just died so <laughs> someone's taking an x-ray picture of us <laughs> and at the back of every thunderbird machine is a box with a cat in it <laughs> oh, oh goodness this is horrifying <laughs> <laughs> yeah that belongs back in our october halloween episode <laughs> okay yes <laughs> But uh, I have no idea where we were. That's too great. But yeah, they're they're secrecy. They don't wear masks or anything, so they'll even give their I, full names. Yeah, I they do after a while, don't they? And everybody knows these are the Tracys. But I guess they don't care about them being known as long as nobody knows how their machines work and where they keep them. They're okay. Yeah, I mean. Later episodes even show that like kids are playing Thunderbird and like making things. So like they've got kind of a, a self-marketing PR thing to there, but they're they're playing both sides. They're like releasing toys and costumes and they're also saying you can't know anything about us. Yeah, they, they downplay that secrecy aspect as the show goes on, I think. 
they still try to maintain some secrecy about the location of their base, but the nature of the Thunderbird machines and the fact that it's international rescue and maybe the fact that it's Jeff, astronaut Jeff Tracy and his sons becomes a little more well-known, or at least they don't emphasize the secrecy in the stories as much. But yeah, it was very locked down early on. Another early episode is City of Fire. My actually absolute favorite oh, episode. Is it? This is my favorite for some of the... It has a lot of the really fun model work in terms of both high-detail, interesting model work and absolutely low-quality because we're going to burn it and blow it up <laughs> model work. There is a scene where a car is crashed into a parking garage. And it is crashed with what I'm absolutely certain is more force than they intended to throw the model with. Because instead of, instead of this skidding crash into the other things, it is launched from like off screen with a, like a slingshot right down this, this model and bounces off of things, pops (laughs) off the ceiling and lands. And then a cut to the people who were supposed to be in the car saying, oh no, and hopping out and running away. It's just like, I'm sorry, you're not alive. No way that crash was survivable, but you know, they have these models, they're going to actually crash them together. They only get one take, and but yet they still need the dialogue scene among the, the people in the car afterwards. So it's pretty resilient civilians here. Oh yeah, and that same model later in that episode is showed with the crash marks still there, having just been like, filled with gas and lit <laughs> and you see this uh, this explosion slightly big enough to shake the camera recording it as it rips through this cardboard model and just like disintegrates it yeah, in a millisecond that'll buff out you know but yeah i think they uh they were definitely still learning how to control some of the explosions and action scenes with these models i don't know if these were done at a a scale they hadn't done before, or, or uh, an intensity they hadn't done before on the earlier Super Marionation shows. But yeah, those those first few episodes, especially, they were they were still getting some of that under control or attempting to. Oh yeah, and moving past the 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 fun of watching things explode, it's a good story in terms of the fact that it is simultaneously a large scope and a small scope story. It is a large scope story about this big building, this engineering marvel that has a major design flaw in terms of its safety. And that um, that on the opening day is immediately shown when the worst case scenario of a fire breaks out and rips through the entire building. It's this mega structure that's a shopping mall and hotels and office buildings. It's like a miniature city in one structure with enormous parking stru- uh, parking spaces down below underground. And you're right, it, it was not engineered for safety in the way things should be. And very smartly, it's though it is the problem is the fact that it becomes a giant fire chimney. The fire goes straight up the building as it's using the underground parking as a, a fuel source to build. And it's pulling air in and it's creating all of this havoc and problem. And it is excellent for that because this giant structure is going down and there's all this thing and there's rescue attempts already working to save people there. Yeah, it's really Irwin Allen disaster movie type stuff. But international rescue is called in because on the small scale, a single family winds up getting trapped in between two of the fire safety walls and they can't be they can't get out and they're slowly 
in a, they're in a room that's slowly filling up with smoke. So the evacuation plans for the megastructure apparently worked, at least for the, the minimal population that was in it on this opening day. Is that kind of why they had to focus on this family for this giant building? Yeah. And it, it's, there, it's right there, like, the big things can go wrong. And we get to see, it's one of the few stories where we get to see response by the people and all of the other technology, advanced fire trucks and such coming out and trying to save the day, news cameras recording what's going on, reporting it on the international news. And we get to see the scope of the sort of things they're dealing with. That's a good point. It's not just something's gone wrong, call international rescue. We see all of the other ordinary, these are supposed to take care of it, responses first. Mm-hmm. And when all else fails, international rescue has to come in. And we get to see the advanced technology everyone else is dealing with. With I, I gotta say, the, the control room has this strange, like, moving console panel that lets him, like, turn and move it around like a little truck. Yeah. It's kind of odd. But they have... When the first thing goes wrong, they have a backup plan. And it's the fact that the backup plan works, but traps someone is the problem. There is agency in action by the people. But when that goes awry, international rescue is called in. Because they can get to the thing that even the agency that people are already taking is not succeeding at. They can be that last push. And that is excellent because it gives you an idea of what the stakes are on later episodes, when they don't spend the time to show you this, they've at least shown you that that's how the world works outside of things, and it gives you that that baseline to run off of, which helped me enjoy some of the other stories without thinking, well, why isn't anyone else trying to fix this? Because it told me someone might have tried already, and they couldn't do it, so they called help. That made sense to me. And it's also fun to watch them deal with this as, you know, the supermarionation is worked inside a room that you can see this layer of smoke building up in and the, the fire effects and the, the danger as they cut through these doors with an untested thing to try to save people. Yeah, you do sort of, as the, the flames spread, you start to worry about these puppets as characters. You also start to worry about these puppets as puppets. <laughs> puppets. You know, what happens when this puppet catches fire? Adds another level of tension. Yeah, that's one of the ones where, like, you can they cut away when, to a second version of the model when the first one starts <laughs> to melt a little. It also introduces some of the, the, the questions around the fact that the technology the Tracys are using are cutting edge and often not thoroughly tested also. Because you mentioned them having to cut through to, to get to save these, um, uh, these people who are trapped. They're using a special cutting torch gas that Brains has developed, and in testing, it turned out that it was causing dizziness and unconsciousness. It was seeping through otherwise good protective gear. Right, and it turned out it was not getting in through their breathing masks, it was getting through their skin. And so they had decided not to use this, but it turned out it was the only kind of torch that would cut through these steel fire doors quickly enough to save this family, so they had to they had to figure out a way to use it and risking themselves um, use it to, to save this family. So it, it's showing you them working against the limitations of their own technology. It wasn't, oh, don't worry, once we call International Rescue, they have all the technology needed to save the day. It, it makes 
International Rescue a proper team of action scientists. These people applying scientific method and scientific potential to new problems, even at risk to themselves. This kind of heroic adventurer of the modern age in that sense. And that's that's fun, and it sets up who these characters are and what they face very clearly. That's one of the reasons I love that episode. That is a good one. And again, that's not one that doesn't have a villain. Even even fire, uh, Trapped in the Sky has a villain in the hood. Apart from a bad driver, there is no real <laughs> villain in uh, in City of Fire. Yeah, the bad driver scene is a problem there, but eh. And there are villains in... Another of my favorites, Move and You're Dead. Oh my goodness. And one. this is an example of more one of the more like personal stories in that it's a lot about the Tracys themselves, or one of the Tracys himself. And although it, it you wind up getting a little crime drama and such in there. But this is one where we see Alan Tracy returning to auto racing, which was apparently one of his earlier loves and pastimes. And he's, I forget the details, but like somebody's trying to fix the race and he's, Alan Tracy is too good. So these mobsters kidnap Alan and grandma, who's also apparently a huge auto racing fan and went to Mexico or wherever they were to, uh, to watch the race. They, and they, they force them by gunpoint onto a bridge. Right. So they put them up on the, the girders above the driving surface of a bridge rigged the bridge with motion-sensitive bombs so that after the bad guys drive away, Grandma and Alan have to stay completely still because if they move, the bombs will go off. Now, why these bad guys were willing to kill people because, you know, they're out in the the hot sun, they're not going to be able to stay still forever. Why they didn't just shoot them and throw them off the bridge, I don't know. I guess because it would have been a short story and we wouldn't have had a pilot for thunderbird three at that point let them get far enough away to again alibi maybe i mean eh? yes i don't know timers better but it did give us this weird interesting version of a ticking clock how long are grandma and and alan going to be able to stay still and we also see the story mostly in flashback we see them in this predicament at the beginning there's this long flashback the entire episode about how they got into this situation, where we see a lot of cool auto racing, a lot of kind of Thunderbirds meet Speed Racer, with that's, racing that's... and crashing and all this stuff. Oh yeah, that's pretty fun. And it, it, it definitely did, the, the keep absolutely still is definitely a fun parallel to all the, the action and adventure that they've got elsewhere in that episode, which... Oh, I like that. I, I mean, it is, it is, this is an oddly metaphor-rich group of mobsters in terms of the fact that they destroy the person who moves quickly by forcing him to not move. Oh, that's very deep. Yeah. I never thought of it that way. <laughs> they, they are destroyed by their own, their own narrative hubris in that sense. And the Andersons and their crew got to build and destroy a lot of model cars in that one. Oh, yeah. And then another kind of episode we get is what I think of as the James Bond kind of episodes, these spy and espionage and secret agent type episodes. And there are a number of those. And those are the ones that tend to bring in Lady Penelope, the Thunderbirds London agent, 
Definitely the one, the, definitely the the episodes that where Sylvia Anderson gets to have more fun because right. those are usually the episodes that involve costumes for the characters and Lady Penelope like infiltrating society and like shady backdoor business deals that people are working and that's definitely her. She gets to have some fun because she's she's got that character designer aspect in all the stuff she's doing, and I believe Lady Penelope was like a character that they had in a, like a fashion magazine stuff for all their stuff before Thunderbirds even. Oh, really? I know that she uh, she became a, a fan favorite uh, from the series, but the, the character predated Thunderbirds. I like that. All right. So, yeah, the character of Penelope was like voiced by and modeled by Sylvia Anderson. Yeah. And all of this, like all of these other projects she had kind of got to coalesce into this one character. And then that character was able to be the the mascot for those things moving forward. But it's definitely got a different vibe in those episodes. And that's great because it breaks up some of these, you know, intense, intense action episodes with these, these, like, methodical intrigue ones. And I love the, uh, the just the idea of a, a kid's action adventure show from the 60s having this female action hero. It's a lot of fun to see. And Sylvia Anderson, kind of, as you say, creating and and voicing that character, uh, I I really hand it to her to to making sure that that got in there. She also gets to bring the the best like bits of future lingo and phrasing into stuff with you know the response to to being ready being fab and the car fab one things like that. Oh, a lot of that was her. I, I from yeah because those things were named for those reasons from what I can from my research and she also gets the episodes with items like the cham cham yes yeah the 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 cham cham is one of those uh, secret agent type episodes it involves there are like experimental military aircraft that keep getting shot down on their test flights and somebody puts together that there's this song being broadcast on a global radio station at the same time there are other, this song is always being broadcast around the time that these uh these planes are being shot down and the, the cham cham uh, that is a cool episode because it involves really it, it's not a very thunderbirds machine heavy show it's a lot of it is lady penelope and tintin and parker doing spy craft and 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 finding out the the information and it's got skiing and skiing with backpack thrusters it's got <laughs> weaponized jazz oh yes it is it is really a cool combination it turned out that there were coded messages being placed in the broadcasts of this song to convey from one spy to another when these test flights were going to happen but that's a, that is a cool episode. It is it's very different from a lot of Thunderbirds, but it's one I rewatch a lot just because it is so interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's got brains figuring out the codes and the technology behind them. And another of the uh, the James Bond kind of episodes is the Perils of Penelope is is what it's called, and it involves a like kidnapped scientist and all this urban spycraft kind of stuff. I like that a lot. Oh yeah, those are those are good episodes. I like those ones. So they're really a variety of things that they tell through the the Thunderbird stories, and the fact that they can do that is really dependent upon the world they've created and the characters they've created. Oh yeah, it is a fleshed out world. It 
it is a world that could run without the Tracy, without international rescue. It's a world that isn't, it, it's, it's a world that you assume is buzzing in the background. That's right. During all of their stuff. There's so many shows where there's a, there's a lack of a, not an object permanence, but an, an action permanence. Where the moment the camera is not focused on the place you're at, nothing must be happening. It must be boring, though, everywhere but where we're watching. No, this is a world that is full of new stuff and people trying things and pushing the limits of what they've found and inventing new stuff that if, if nothing happened with the, for the Tracys for months on end, there'd still be something going on to see. You're right. It is a very real-seeming world in that sense, ironically, for a, a puppet show, but you're right. And, and I think some of that comes from the fact that all of the supporting characters seem real and busy, in a sense. We talked about the Hood, the recurring villain, but there's also all the other people that they interact with, all these military people who are manning and, and organizing these test flights of this, these aircraft. They're doing a job, and they're real characters, and you, you can really believe that, that they are they're involved in this, and the last thing in the world they expected was to have to involve international rescue. And you wonder, well, if this is happening, and this is something that went wrong, so international rescue got involved, there's stuff happening all over this world. There are shopping malls opening every week around the world. Most of them don't become giant infernos requiring the intervention of international rescue. They're just happening because that's what the world does. It says something that even in some of the later episodes, there are people who call out international rescue on their radio when something goes wrong, but there are people also who just yell help. Are just, help anybody, I'm trapped, someone, please. And when they get a response, they're surprised. Yeah. Which says that this is a world so full of other stuff going on and so interesting that not everyone is aware of international rescue. That international rescue is just a piece that sometimes connects with other things. But the rest of the world is running without them in that sense. Yeah, it may be a world that needs international rescue, but it's not a world that revolves around international rescue. And that is, that is great, because that means that even without having to show it, the bits they have shown flesh out the rest of the world out, outside the edges of the screen. You're right. There is the more of that world, and it's not just the characters beyond all the, the characters that populate this world. There's all the other parts of this, as you, I love that phrase, high engineering world that they've created. It makes the Thunderbirds more believable. The Thunderbirds may be the, the highest level of this technology right now, but it's not generations ahead of this technology. We see lots of super advanced engineering sometimes going well, sometimes going wrong, but they appear as just, it's part of, super engineering is part of this world. So we see these amazing mining machines and logging machines and spacecraft and uh, all of this amazing stuff. And there's enough of it around that you figure, well, we're just seeing the ones that go wrong. Most of it goes right, because this is the world of 2065. It's a world of 2065 that, I mean, the fact that it doesn't have the information technology of now is the thing that keeps it from being the potential future. 
but the scope of which the uh, the scope to which things have grown means that it doesn't feel like a future we've somehow already passed. Yeah, it's that retrofuturism kind of thing. Yeah, it, it, this is a this is a different fork, but it's a it's a different fork that still feels at this time when we're speaking now further out on its path than we are on our own path. Hmm. And that's something that's fun because it means that you can still be looking forward. You're looking forward and to the side now, but you're still looking forward. It still is a, a future sci-fi in that sense. Love that. Um, and it must have seemed like a very plausible future from the perspective of the 1960s. I recently got to go to the, um, the National Museum of the United States Air Force in Ohio. And one of the galleries there was a lot about the, the research and development type work. And a lot of what they were showing there was from the like late 50s and into the 60s and 70s. And some of the, that mid-60s super advanced technology, you look at that and you realize this is what Jerry Anderson and Sylvia Anderson had in mind when they were designing the world of the Thunderbirds. You know, there's the, the Mach 3 Valkyrie aircraft the the fire flash sst in thunderbirds is so clearly based upon this general design the super long sleek super high speed aircraft it's it's a version of the valkyrie in a lot of ways and these lifting body aircraft you can see yeah you make this bigger and modular and paint this green you can see where thunderbird 2 comes from it was so much fun to see that because it connected Thunderbirds, as I can watch them today, with what the Andersons would have been able to find out about or or get a sense of to project this future world they were building. Before even the models were made, it has a physicality because it's based in a physicality. And that is brilliant. And the characters are fun futuristic in that sense, too, because they are. They are full of of recognizable interests and hobbies and characteristics and such, but they're decked out with this mix of, you know, style at the time, but pushed a little in one direction or another, but it's treated with a, oh, this is just regular people's clothes, so it always has this a bit of future tech to it. Uniformed characters have this fun consistency to their uniforms. And they do a lot with scale still looking like people. Yeah, the the fashion, I think, is so much fun to see. It is very fun when they do the couple of cuts to, like, physical hands at a console. Because you'll always have someone, like, if they're if the character's wearing a checked shirt, then the hand, then you'll see the hand and there'll be the collar of the, the, the cuff of this checked shirt coming through. But it's always the same fabric they purchased. To make the character costume. So the check size is always extremely different. And I loved it, seeing that. It's one of those bits that does break immersion. But I'm excited by it. Yeah they should stick to solids for those. But you're right that is fun to see. And they do sometimes when there's somebody manipulating controls. Or that kind of thing. Or opening a wine bottle. They'll cut to someone actually doing this with real hands. And like you said before. It becomes a drinking game. Oh, yeah, real hand. And I think Sylvia Anderson designed a lot of those clothes, and they made these scale um, uh, 
garments, this clothing for these puppets. And it was just this very cool mod swinging kind of style. Again, it's projecting, what if it's the 1960s, but it's everybody's rich and it's what we love, but more so was the future from the Thunderbirds. And that's great. It's also a kid's show where you actually get to see main characters change outfits. Yes, not too many of those. No, I mean, how how many green shirts does Shaggy own? <laughs> kind of becomes the question. But no, 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 no. The Tracys have wardrobes. Right. They have entire wardrobes on tiny hangers. And they switch things out for each episode, and depending on where they're going, if they're not in their blue uniforms. <laughs> and, you know, talking about it's taking something from that time and projecting it forward, the music is like that a lot. A lot of smooth jazz a lot of really cool swinging music. Uh, one of the Tracys plays piano. That's, um, I was going to say Scott, but I think it's Virgil. There's, there's a little baby grand piano in the, the Tracy's lounge on Tracy Island, and we see him tickling the ivories while everybody else is smoking cigarettes and drinking martinis. And It is just it is very, very cool. Rat, oh, yeah. rat pack, former astronaut, world savior kind of kind of feel. And it's fun to see, I always love retrofuturism, I love to see what other people thought the future was going to be like. And the Thunderbirds wraps all of that up in these really fun action-adventure stories. Even if sometimes they're slow-paced, they are still so much fun to watch. It, it, it builds a world and it builds a, a series of things that means I want to take a piece of this with me. I, as silly as, actually kind of, weird at times as it is with the flashing eyes on the por portraits i admit i looked up how much it would be to buy a couple of like cheap small monitors and a few raspberry pi w's and just set up a uh quick notification system like that on the actual <laughs> wall it's just because that would be fun that would be great and there's something about the retrofuturism that is functional retrofuturism implementable in certain aspects that's fun and part of that is the physicality of it. And that's one thing that we don't get in today's technology. And I think this has come up before where we're so, when, once everything is digital, it's all screens and the same screen you're looking at all day. Sometimes it's a book, sometimes it's a weather station, sometimes it's a, um, a way of writing letters to people, but you're still looking at the same screen. Having all these different physical things and having this video phone pop up from the surface of Jeff Tracy's desk so he can have a phone call and somebody else having to go somewhere else to to find some records on a tape system. It's the physicality just makes life sound so much more fun when you've got to work with all this stuff. I understand there are limitations and I, I'm not saying there's a problem with with uh, things being digital, but I love seeing the physicality of the world they live in in their 2065. This is a world where, like, I am hoping that as listeners here, you can have fun with, like, listen to us, but go around, look at your stuff, like, do a project while talking to us, because that's going to be some of that same energy of this, you're not just passive, but there's active to this world, even if it's not big. So, like, I'm I'm hoping you're enjoying some sort of project, listener, while you do this, because that actually fits the Thunderbird kind of world at that same time. So, I'm 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 hoping to bring a bit of that to you because I'm enjoying it enough that I want to bring it with me, and I want to bring some of that to you too. 
Well, I think that the the level of enthusiasm with which we have been discussing the Thunderbirds is going to, to tip our hand, but we do have to answer our questions. Oh, yes. Our first question, it's, we're talking about a TV show, so the first question is binge or no binge? Block binge. I do not think... As much as I've been, we've been loving this, Thunderbird episodes can be slow. Thunderbird episodes can be a little long for what they fill it with. If you try to watch a lot of them in a row, it's gonna be a bit of a slog. This is a show where I definitely say, break it up over the course of your your work week or your 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 month or I mean, thirty two episodes, plenty. Watch an episode a night or something. But go through the series and enjoy it and have time to, like, get into each one. Yeah, I think I think that counts as a binge. Watch an episode every night if you want to. I, I wouldn't suggest this for you. Take a weekend and watch the whole series because you're right. Some of them are too slow for that. And also, it's worth spreading out. It's worth not rushing through. So, yeah, uh, for some people, Murder, She Wrote is their comfort viewing. They'll put on a murder she wrote at bedtime every night, and that kind of, they get to relax and watch a fun show and wind down. For some people, that's Columbo. For us, sometimes for for a week or two at a time or more, that is Thunderbirds. And, you know, late at night, everybody is not quite ready to go to bed yet. We will put on a Thunderbirds. We've seen them all now. We still do that. So, yeah, I would say binge. Uh, and and give this a shot, and you may find yourself drawn into that same pattern because they're fun, and the, the characters are fun, and the the world they live in is a fun place to visit. You you might be the type to cheer when you see Gordon, or get really excited when uh whenever Thunderbird three launches. There's there's or become a super fan of Lady Penelope and oh, her yeah. driving around in her pink Rolls Royce and her little revolver. And yeah, you know, you're talking about the Thunderbirds being armed. You know, Lady Penelope will mix it up if she has to. And Parker, of course, he's uh, oh yeah, got more uh, more capability than he lets on. So yeah, I would say I think we're both on the same page. Binge, make this uh, consider making this a nightly comfort viewing. Mm-hmm. So our second question: revive, reboot, or rest in peace? This is the trickiest one because. It does. It already has. All of the above almost has been done. Not the rest in peace, but... not the. It it had a long period with nothing. And that's kind of the time when it did. True. And then there was a... a, There was, I mean, there was two movies in that time. That's true. And that was still kind of contemporaneous with the TV show. Mm -hmm. There were two Super Marionation movies, like Thunderbirds Are Go was one of them, and Thunderbirds 6, I think, was the title of the other one. Yeah. And they were fun. They were extended Thunderbirds episodes, but they're worth watching they, as well. They might be something else. They may be something that we watch at another point in one form or another. Right. So, But there was, a rev- there was a movie, an attempted revival. And that was like the uh, 2004, I think? Yeah, and I would call that a reboot because but, I don't know that it was strictly in continuity with the series. Yeah, that's... Because it wasn't Super Marionation. It was live action. It was live action. And that one was my first introduction to the show, actually. So the entire brand was that oh, movie. Oh, right. We and went that... to the Cinema Grill and watched that when, you know, back in 2004, I guess it was. Yeah. And it, that, that was an interesting way to be introduced to the series. And I'm going to want to talk about that at some other point or maybe in a different recording. But it's, 
that's a very different product in some ways. Because you were really just at the right target age for that, weren't you? Mm-hmm. And I like noticed how much it was fun, and I think I got disheartened because definitely that's one of the like the first. They ran into a problem with the original series, and they run into the problem with any version of it, where the Thunderbirds are all very different scales of vehicles. So either you manufacture them, the toys of them, at scale to each other, at which point the Thunderbird 3 model is very expensive, and the Thunderbird 4 model comes free with every single one of the other ones in terms of size. (laughs) Sorry, Gordon. Or you build them all at the same size so that they use the same amount of plastic, but then it's really awkward to play them together (laughs) and don't even dare try to mix brand sets i'm getting off track here but no you're 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 diving down a a toy uh a toy hole here it's absolutely Uh, the toyetic aspect is great but it's almost one of the things achilles heals and so that movie had some odd running into the same issues from what i understand of that and it but then it went dark again for a while right and you know i liked that movie more than most people. It gets a bad rap. I understand Jerry Anderson didn't like it at all. I don't know. It They turned it into a kind of a straightforward kids action adventure story. But I liked it. I enjoyed it. Yeah. But then, there was another revival. Although also, kind of reboot. It's kind of a different take in some ways. It's kind of a return to form in others. And that's Thunderbirds are Go. You're right. And it's hard to say exactly whether that's a revival or a reboot. It's supposed to kind of be in the same continuity, and yet it recycles some of the stories as if they didn't happen before. So it's 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 really it's hard to peg. It's either a revival or a reboot, depending on what details you look at. And it's changed what some of the characters are like. Tintin is very different, right? Even changing the name, I think, for trademark reasons with the. Uh, uh, the Belgian cartoon, a comic book character. Yeah. So it's like they've they've really updated it. It's a it's a very different show, but it it tackles that same stuff. And it's actually in part because I believe we noticed that that we went back and rewatched some of the originals and got back into stuff. That we started watching both of those almost simultaneously. Yeah, we watched through all of the Thunderbirds are uh, the are go the new version that we were able to watch, and then we went back to see the originals. Because they're all available on Amazon Prime, it turns out. And, uh, yeah, Thunderbirds Are Go, the newer version, I think is terrific because it is a combination of physical model work and CGI. The characters are are computer-generated, but it still maintains that kind of physicality that that Jerry Anderson and Sylvia Anderson shows have yeah so it it mean the the environments are built by weta workshop it is super awesome in detail and then it has this 3d modeling of the characters going around and interacting with it and it it feels like what they would have made if they just kept running it for all the time right i i think that's a great point i think that thunderbirds are go really are the way the andersons would have made thunderbirds if they had the tv production uh, uh, resources and technologies um, that they're able to have now. And I believe that Jerry Anderson passed away before they started producing Thunderbirds Argo, mm-hmm. but Sylvia Anderson was able to be involved 
I, before I believe, she passed away and she she even recorded some audio for one episode i believe right there was a character she didn't um uh voice uh lady penelope in this version but was like an aunt of lady penelope's that uh, she got to do the voice acting for so that was fun to see and um and they have updated some things it's still set in the 2060s but it's a 2060s that are a little more plausible from a 20 teens point of view so there there is digital technology brains has this computer uh, has this robot sidekick and um who's kind of the robot sidekick i don't want to go into too much but he's an interesting uh, interesting character in his own right Brains' robot sidekick has kind of taken over for Carano's role in some ways. I yeah, I guess so. In and some they, ways. and and they've given a plausible explanation because there's an AI that's part of uh, Thunderbird Five, which explains how everything's being tracked. Right. It it's a little bit more if if the first one was a an an engineering just kept going. There's a bit more of an engineering renaissance has happened. Right. In this new one. But it get it means that it gets that same sort of fun mechanical element to it, and the uh, the sliding into your vehicles has gotten more ridiculous in a fun way. <laughs> right. So I think in answer to uh, the question about revive, reboot, or rest in peace, I think the answer is yes. Yes. I mean reboot. I like I say I kind of like the live action movie. That was a reboot. Sure. Why not? It was fun revive and or reboot the answer is yes and they did it and they did it well so and go watch that one too also binge yes <laughs> and yeah i'm hoping we'll get more of those and uh i think that it all together it just shows how well put together thunderbirds and their world and their ideas are mm. that uh that we we can keep returning to it and getting so much enjoyment out of it and getting such inspiration out of it it is a a type of story that is all about overcoming these challenges and having personalities that you're going to latch onto one of them, at least, is the idea for. So it's just inspirational in some ways. You just get to be drawn into this world and have an adventure with them. That is That is lacking in other stuff. And you can have an adventure that isn't about necessarily fighting bad guys or engaging in in war it's a, an adventure about rescuing people how cool is that yeah push limits and be there for those who push limits and then get stuck somewhere yeah it's that is a great kind of message to put together into a package and it means that because we have people like those in international rescue we can afford to keep pushing those limits and and building new futures mhm So we've been looking forward to talking about uh, Thunderbirds for a while, and hope you enjoyed this. We're probably going to go and watch more Thunderbirds right now, just because uh, we always do. It's so much fun. F-A-B. <laughs> but um, uh, until then, uh, you should go ahead and watch that, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with uh, some more discussions of media from the 20th century. And in the meantime, uh, Ian, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter as Item Crafting, on YouTube as Item Crafting, and on Instagram as Item Crafting. I kind of use the same name most places. You can find me uh, online at uh, MatthewFPorter.com. You'll find links to all kinds of stuff there. 
And uh, you can find me on Twitter at by Matthew Porter. And you can find the podcast at the website www.immproject.com, or you can find us on Twitter at immpcast. And on that website, um, immproject.com, you'll find a link to our Discord where you can come and chat with us about the show and about old media and anything else you like. You might find some links to t-shirts you can buy and a link to our Patreon. Yeah, you can always you know click the link, slide your way on over to the Patreon and support us. We've got different levels with different things, including our our movie club. That's right. Every uh, person who supports us on Patreon gets access to special areas on the Discord, but other tiers get additional rewards up to, uh, some of them include additional audio content that you'll get through Patreon. And uh, you're right, there's top level is the IMP Movie Club, where every few months uh, you will get a DVD of something, I'm not going to promise it'll be good, but we're pretty sure it'll be interesting. So thanks to those who have supported, and uh, thank you so much for listening, uh, whether you do or not, and uh, we hope you'll come back next time. Yeah, definitely share this with some of the other people you know, and get the word out, because we are, we, unlike International Rescue, we are not trying to stay secret. <laughs> All right, so uh, thanks again, everybody, and we'll see you next time. In the meantime, go find something new to watch. A Cham Cham is a new electronic machine that is sensitive to ultrasonic harmonics and microtones. Oh, of course. Now that I know the technique they've been using, I'll soon break their code.